FIS Castaway, the podcast keeping you in the know about the shipping and commodity world. To keep up to date, sign up to our FIS Live app at www.fis-live.com or follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Welcome back to Castaway, FIS's freight and commodity podcast. It is Wednesday the 9th of June and we have a fantastically sunny day here, don't we, Kerry? We do indeed. Hi, Chris. Uh, we obviously have uh, here, Kerry, we have uh, from Singapore, Theo, and our special guest this week, we have Peter, who's Index Manager at Fast Markets. Hello, everyone. Hi, guys. Hi, guys. Cool. Right. So let's go into our overview of the news this week. We've got our indexes, uh, a brief overview of our main markets before clearly focusing on iron ore for our kind of special guest this week. So what have we had? Opposition leaders reached an agreement to form a new Israeli government, ousting longtime leader Netanyahu. A cargo ship carrying chemicals and plastic pellets sank off the coast of Sri Lanka after having been on fire for two weeks. Malaysia's foreign minister said it would be summoning China's ambassador after 16 Chinese Air Force planes were detected in its airspace. Uh, The OECD forecasts that the world economy would grow by 5.8% this year, but still put global output $3 trillion less than it would have been without the pandemic. Britain began the process to join the Comprehensive and Progressive Agreement for Trans-Pacific Partnership. Uh, no awards for naming that one. <laughs> I might have got that out in one. And the Eurozone's inflation leapt to 2% in May, surpassing the central bank's target, with levels in Germany hitting 2.4%. And in the non-interesting, I guess, more silly news, uh, President Macron, of course, got slapped by a random person in the crowd yesterday as well. Indeed. Um, but in the indexes, let, look at that. We're up, up across the board for oil and those fuel oil products. Brent up 2.36%. We're now Firmly above that $70 level, $71.90. Rot 3.5%, the highest of fuel oil, up 2.19%, 384.90 closing. Uh, 396.15 for the Sting 380, up also just above 2%. Uh, the 0.5%, 496.07 on the Rot 0.5. Yesterday's close for FIS numbers. These are, of course, Tuesday the 1st versus Tuesday the 8th. Uh, closing on that 500 level, up 2.5% from last week. The Sting firmly over that 500 level, 516.57. Uh, up 2.4%. And those high fives, the difference between the very low sulfur fuel oil and the high sulfur fuel oil, 111 for the ROT high five, up 3.7%, and 120, up 26 for the Sing version. Kerry, what about the freight? Freight uh, uh, The freight is not quite so positive. That Cape size 5TC average at 19.845 on the spot. That's down 5,187 or 20.7% again this week. Uh, the Panamax 4TC looking a bit better at 25,604. That's up 1,728 or 7.2%. And Theo, the iron ore Yeah, the iron ore markets, uh, plus 62% yesterday uh, was $210.10. That's up $1.30 or 0.62%. The fast market, 65%, was $239.80, down 10 cents, which is negative 0.04% week on week. And the uh, fast market 65 versus the plat 62 spread was $30.80, which is down $1.40 or 4.55% week on week. And ran off those indexes with the tankers, TC2, were actually down across the border of the, the tanker markets that I have on my sheet here, down 18.6% TC2, 110.28, TC5 down 7%. 87.43 at minus 11.9% on the VLs, TD3C, and TD25 down 10%, 68. 33. But just a quick run through of uh, more of the ins and outs of what's happening on our main markets before our iron ore feature. Uh, as I said, on the oil and products across, 
up across the board on, on, on those both the, the crude as well as the, the fuel oils that we look at. And the main driver of those recent grains uh, gains has been the fact that models from OPEC show that demand is due to outstrip supply in the second half of, of this year, with demand looking likely to hit 99.8 million barrels uh, a day, with supply hitting only 97.5 million barrels per day. So looking much rosier on those figures than it was a year ago. Uh, the EIA, just after our podcast last week, gave the figures of crude oil night draw 5.1 million, and we're looking forward this week uh, to another draw. So we've seen it push above that $72 level on Brent, um, extending what we've seen as a kind of slow rally across yeah. uh, from that recovery after the collapse that we had in April last year. If you look at what's happening specifically in the market, hedge funds and other money markets purchased the equivalent of 40 million barrels in the six most important futures and option contracts in uh, in oil uh, after selling a total of 74 million over the previous three weeks. So we're up 21 millions in uh NYMEX and ICE WTI uh, with less buying in Brent, but we're up there 9 million barrels as well. So some decent volumes being put on the on the buy side from those who look at that more speculative position than necessarily anything that they'd be hedging. Uh, if you're looking in terms of more of the physical sides, uh, Integrate, our partner of, on our app. So if you'd like to see their physical pricings, do go to www.freightinvestorservices.com forward uh, forward slash FIS hyphen live and you can sign up there for a one month free trial with us you can get 10 products across the freight and commodity complex uh, one of those being physical pricings on fuel uh, and they have been talking this week about uh, Singapore's residual fuel oil stocks jumped to a three-week high uh, higher imports this week with middle distance stocks slumped their lowest level since March 2020 and that was from Enterprise Singapore data there. And the, the very low sulfur fuel oil has been quite prompt for several months with the low sulfur marine gas oil also readily available uh, in the bunkering hub of Singapore. In terms of Fajara, things have eased a bit there in the bunkering hub with low sulfur supply oil tightness, uh, with lead times for that fuel down by two days um, on the week to four days now, um, and with the marine gas oil unchanged. But looking at some tightness on those fuels, uh, and a much better market, especially those hitting those 500 levels, maybe both grades above that by next week. We will have to see. But Kerry, we're going to be moving on to freight before our iron ore feature. What are we seeing there? Well, the support we saw last week on the Cape paper, uh, especially last Tuesday, had briefly looked as if it might translate into support on those physical indices. Optimism had soared against uh, spiking iron ore futures and generally spiking commodity prices. But regrettably, that utterly failed to happen. Uh, the physical market only seemed to accelerate its decline on the big ships with the Aussie majors going a bit quieter, leaving the C5 West Australia China rates to grind down towards those mid nine US dollar per metric ton levels, which we haven't seen for a while. A holiday in Brazil last week kept inquiry low there, allowing the C3 to slip yet further. But the index marked at 21 spot 475 per metric ton yesterday, although again, what inquiry there is now is for those July dates. Um, so there is still quite a, a large prompt tonnage list, and that seems to be driving the rates down on the index. But rumors continue of stronger fixtures for the deferred dates, including mid $23 per metric ton heard yesterday in the market. Uh, and that's helped the paper to maintain a contango on the nearby months. The August contract in particular has barely budged since last week, closing at $34,750 value last night. That's down less than 1000 week on week. 
I do wonder, though, uh, in general, how much longer a such a steep contango can last, really, if we if we don't see any support in the physical market very soon. Panamax is, again, a different story entirely, continuing to gain ground. In particular, the North Atlantic saw a fresh surge of inquiry at the start of this week, sending front haul rates flying upwards, uh, looking at the low 40,000s now off the continent for front haul, while North Coast South America and U.S. Gulf stems continued to give further support to the market. East Coast South America not looking quite as strong, however. And in the Pacific, the picture looked rather different. There was growing tonnage list causing a little bit of concern. We saw a slight waiver on the rates for the pack rounds yesterday. This capped gains on the paper a little bit, especially in light of the continuing Cape sell-off, although the July Panamax closed 27,150 last night, about 1,200 up week on week, with the Q4 gaining a similar amount to close just over 23,000. Cool. Thank you, Kerry. And a brief overview on the iron ore, uh, Theo, before we go through a bit more in-depth on that. What have we seen no, this week? Guys, uh, during the week, we saw um, the iron ore front end markets way above $200 again after it dropped below that uh, about a week or two ago. The July contract reached 207.05 a ton the 2nd of June, which is the highest since mid May. There's been concerns over supply, iron ore supply to China, and the inventory at ports dropped to 127.65 million tonnes last week, which is the lowest since February, start of February this year. And the shipment arrivals have been lower this week as well. Um, shipments from Rio have been declining, while Vale uh, has interruption in production at two mines over safety concerns, which reduced its output by 40,000 tonnes a day. To put this in context, the Vale mine, which is its name Timbopiba, has a total annual capacity of about 12 to 14 million tonnes of iron ore production per year. Uh, finally, also, CISA in China made another statement last week about China plans to cut 236 million tonnes of steel capacity by 2035, sending the Shifi rebar futures back over 5,000 RMB per tonne. Um, Theo, I'm, we have seen you know that Cape market absolutely collapsing um, in, in recent weeks. And, and one of the reasons behind that's been relatively slow inquiry from Brazil. So whilst we're seeing deliveries of Brazilian ore up very, very strongly in China, that's, of course, reflective of, you know, all the shipments, you know, that, that loaded a month ago. Um, you know, given the conditions are still profitable for the mills, even though those margins are being squeezed, are you surprised that we're not seeing a little bit more inquiry out of Brazil? Um, and uh, do you think that's being driven on the Brazilian side by production uh, production issues, or is it, or is this something where the mills are, are simply looking at their steeply falling margins and saying, okay, we're going to hold off a little bit on the high grade? I think there have been concerns from the steel mills regarding their margins because they have been getting they have been dropping, and they weren't at their dizzy heights they were a few months ago, and uh, also yeah, they're considering the uh, production cuts in uh, in Brazil. It's a double effect, really, I think. It gives us a perfect moment to obviously bring in our special guest of the week, Peter, from Fast Markets. Um, I feel like we have managed to get you in the perfect timing of what has been just over a year of a mental iron ore market from when we started this podcast, having moved from where we were to, I guess now, you know, still over 200 bucks on both those grades. It has been quite, uh, quite a journey we've had. And I don't know if you want to start just having a bit of a talk of, I guess, what you do at Fast Markets and what your kind of 
brief overview of what the last year or a bit has been like for, for watching the market. Sure. Thanks, Chris. And uh, yeah, thanks guys for inviting me on the podcast to really appreciate the, the opportunity to talk with you guys. Um, you know, I've been at Fast Market since 2013 um, and have been involved in our iron ore pricing all over that time and obviously seen a few ups and downs in the market price levels. And yeah, as you say, this last year has been pretty incredible. Um, the levels we've seen have been records, um, in incredible volatility as well. Um, I think across one week, we saw our biggest ever rise and biggest ever drop in price. So it really has been a roller coaster. Um, but something I'm always quite keen to do is to focus on the details beyond just the kind of headline prices um, and look at things like, you know, what the differentials between different grades are telling us about market conditions. Um, now, I think uh, most of us will probably agree that iron ore's variability as a commodity, in effect, is really a bit of a non-commodity with all the different uh, grades and forms. It's quite a large part of what makes it such an in interesting industry to, to work in, an interesting market to observe. Um, so I'm kind of keen to, to focus in this discussion on that. Um, well, and well then exactly, yeah. Peter, I mean, I, one might say, you, you know, it gives us kind of a 3D view of the market to look at the different grades and the dynamics between those grades, right? Exactly. Yeah. So I, the way I think about it is just as you said, you know, looking at just a 62% FE price, you're sort of viewing the market along a single plane of dimension. Um, when, well, when you bring in the 65 um, and also other premiums like lump premiums, pellet premiums, impurity penalties, you get a much more three-dimensional picture of the market um, and what's going on. And I think that can really help us to interpret different market events. Um, you know, for instance, what's, what's been going on in the market quite recently. For those people who aren't quite so in tune with the iron ore market, when we talk about grades, when we say 65%, when we say 62%, what does that mean and the implications of those numbers? So it's a percentage of iron content in the product and Basically, when you're paying for iron ore, you want, rule of thumb, the most iron iron content there. So a higher grade FE, 65% will be more expensive in general than 62%. Um, and it also has implications as we'll come on to around things like uh, the productivity mills can achieve, but also their emissions levels and, and co-consumption. So then moving forward on to that kind of, of topic, a big thing in uh, talk of people at the moment is obviously... Uh, the impact of, of climate change. And one thing which we look at, and obviously Theo outlined it in his short intro to the iron market for the last week, was that spread between the 65 and the 62%. So if you want to go a little bit more detail over what that spread has, has done, what does the implications of, of the movement mean in terms of the market a bit more in depth? Sure. Well, I guess before we come on to the more long-term uh, angles looking at the, the effects of climate change mitigation, we might just sort of talk about what that spread, that 65-62 uh, spread, which now has a forward market as well, liquid forward market on SGX, so it's very transparent, tells us about um, the price levels and the volatility. Now, I think we can infer quite a great deal from it. For example, it gives us a big clue as to how speculative versus how fundamentally underpinned the recent high-level price action uh, that we've been seeing is, which I think it's something that a fair few people have questioned. Um, the 65-62 spread is currently at a very historically high level. It's above $30 a ton. It's been there for several weeks now. And that's versus its long-term 
average level of more like around $13. And what that points to, I think, is that there has been a real physical tightness in the market and a real logical profit motive for mills to be producing as much steel as possible, even at these price levels. Because as um, you know, we alluded to, higher grade ores help to maximize a mill's productivity. So the 65 premium is typically quite closely reflective of uh, mill margins. And it's interesting because I'm a regular listener to this uh, podcast and have been hearing Theo actually you know, rightly saying that pretty much that thing for a few weeks, you know, iron ore prices have been really just hitching a ride on the strength of downstream steel prices. Um, you can obviously see this in the steel price data and in things like mill margin estimations. But what's good about the 65-62 spread is it's a nice additional way of triangulating with those other metrics and really validating your understanding. And you know, more than that, when that triangulation of price action versus the other market data doesn't quite match up or make sense, it can tell you that you know, something's worth looking into a bit further or even you know, a trading opportunity could be on the cards. Um, I'll give one example of that. So take the situation in the market at the start of this year in January 2021. Prices were kind of tracking fairly flat, not really doing much. But then the 65-62 spread all of a sudden shot up quite sharply. And crucially, that was ahead of any rise in any real rise in mill margins. Um, you know, I wrote a short LinkedIn article on that at the time, just trying to make sense of it, because it was hard to explain the extent of the movement in the grade spread um, with the, the things like, you know, rising coke prices and supply concerns at the time. And looking back, it's quite clear with hindsight that what was really happening was the mills had started to fill um, a pull on their downstream end from buyers of their finished products, which obviously told them that the market was about to get really hot and that they should raise their productivity. Um, so yeah, you know, look what's happened in the in the last few months. But the first indicator of that was, you know, things that the wider market wasn't aware of. Um, you felt that from the mill action first. So often it's these grade spreads that can uh, give give some good hints and leading indicators as to what might be about to happen in the market. Yeah, do you also can you also explain uh, steel capacity cuts in China, which the, the announcements come out it's left, right, and center from China versus uh, iron ore prices following and going up? Because logically, you'd think you cut steel capacity, then you don't need as much oil, iron ore, would you? Yeah, it's a it's a great point. It's so counterintuitive, and the market has kind of been like this for a few years now. Like you, you see this news that instinctively, intuitively should be bad news for iron ore, but then prices go up. And it basically comes down to the fact that cutting steel capacity tends to tighten steel markets, steel prices go up. And as long as there's a, a margin, mills will then kind of, you know, feed like a frenzy for, for iron ore cargoes to kind of play into that margin. So and would they would they be looking for higher grade at that point as well? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. So that also stimulates the higher grade. Because if you're trying to produce more steel from less capacity, the way you can do that is by consuming the, the higher grade products. Interesting, interesting. But one, one thing that I think has kept everyone chatting this year, especially as we sort of touched on that ESG argument before, um, and, and if you've listened to this podcast, you will have heard me say many times and Theo say many times that one of the, the, the few solid ESG plays 
in the R&R market is looking at that 65 versus 62 spread. And in fact, looking at the price point to the 65%, because it is a purer grade of iron ore. It requires slightly less of other inputs like coking coal, but it also causes slightly less pollution. Um, you know, one of the arguments has been that China is switching to an EAF based production that is electric arc furnaces for those who aren't familiar that melt down scrap metal uh, rather than using any type of iron ore rather than a blast furnace, which is fed with iron ore. Um, you know, that that's something you consistently hear against, you know, the, let's say the growth in 65% is, oh, but they're all switching to EAF anyway. But is it even possible for China to supply its steel making needs with EAF furnaces? I tend to doubt that, wouldn't you, Peter? Uh, yeah, certainly the, the volume that it needs at the moment. And it's a market that's demand is always increasing. So that target of what EAS would need to catch up to and produce seems to be getting constantly further away. Um, the fact is with EAS still making a scrap base still making it in particular is that there's the scrap supply pool is quite predictable and the growth of it is quite predictable as industrial economies mature and, and that increases. Yeah. And you can't really accelerate that process. Um, so, yeah, I don't think there's too much to worry about in terms of demand, at least for, for the foreseeable few decades to come for, um, for iron ore products, but especially higher grades, because, you know, that is, as, as you said, you know, for the same reasons that consuming higher ratios of high grade or uh, raises a mill's productivity, it also reduces their uh, co-consumption. Um, obviously, higher grade ores contain lower levels of impurities like silica and alumina. So that means less slag is produced in the blast furnace, um, which results in less coke being consumed. And therefore, um, you know, if you're consuming less coke, you're emitting less carbon. So pound for pound, higher grade iron ores are cleaner. Um, so if there is a kind of you know, a need for mills using the existing capacity, the blast furnace capacity to reduce their carbon emissions, yeah, will probably be around incentivizing ready use of uh, higher grades at the expense of lower grades. I, I agree. I agree. And I think that that argument about sort of EAF substitution is 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 kind of a false one for the for the reasons you just said. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's not going to be possible at, at any time in the near future to replace to, to supply all of China's steel needs with that EAF production. So, But then, Kerry, rid riddle me this. If we're going to be pushing on that in terms of higher grades and then the impact then on tonnage miles for higher grades, because that's mainly a Brazilian yeah. ore. Well, very much so. Uh, and what it should mean, uh, uh, you know, as long as mills stay profitable enough to want to maximize production and want to seek out those higher grades is an increase in 10 miles. Um, and again, this plays into a geopolitical argument, too. We have seen the spat, the ongoing spat between Australia and China. Uh, the higher grade ores do tend to come from Brazil, uh, among other places. So, you know, this could very much mean a swing to away towards those uh, the, those Brazilian miners, um, you know, assuming they can they can up their production enough. Um, and if certainly if you look at Bale's production targets, they're very very ambitious. You know, um, getting back to 450 million tons in the medium term a year, or so or getting up to 450 million tons, I should say. So, yeah, I, I absolutely think that you should, in theory, see a longer term underpinning 
of, uh, of strength in the Cape market uh, based on that time mileage. However, making structural, structural forecasts like that can be highly dangerous in a market like the Cape size. Oh, we, we like so. this on this podcast. You just pull, pull the pin on the grenade, let it out, and then see what happens. But you know, so, we threw in the story you picked up last time as well with the, the increasing steel prices and people going, yeah. oh, about shipbuilding. And yeah. they're delaying those. So as we said, we could have a very healthy route from uh, Brazil to exactly, China. Exactly, exactly. But anyway, bring it back to Peter, uh, obviously our special guest and uh, guru on everything iron ore. What about in terms of longer trends? We started talking and touching on uh, the environmental question and how we move to a more environmentally friendly and a greener economy. Are there longer term trends which could come in to, or things to be watching if we're, we're kind of keep our finger on the pulse of, of how that's going to be done? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, governments around the world, as I'm sure um, everyone's aware, are committing to reaching carbon neutrality over the next two or three decades, even China by 2060. Um, the steel industry accounts for nearly a quarter of total industrial CO2 emissions, though. So these ambitions have a really big steel industry-shaped problem to deal with if they're going to be realized. Um, there's various routes towards lower or even near zero carbon emitting steel making, but they pretty much do all involve consuming greater quantities of, of higher grade ores. Um, as we touched on just now, the kind of lowest hanging fruit is to optimize carbon emissions from the prevailing, you know, existing blast furnace capacity around the world. Especially in China, that's going to be necessary because these are young blast furnace fleets that um, aren't going to be torn down and, and replaced with any alternative technologies anytime soon. So yeah. the, exactly. So the, the first kind of thing that's necessary is carrot and stick incentives um, through regulation, things like carbon pricing to incentivize optimization of those processes. Um, that will obviously feed back into uh, price prices for premiums for things like high grades, which you know aren't just going to go up indefinitely. They will incentivize a supply response. So I think going forward, we're going to see more new supply in the world being high grade. Um, it's interesting to think about you know, something like the Simandu development. If that comes online at some point later in the decade, um, you know, both blocks of it, then really the, the combined tonnage of that product and uh, the supply from northern Brazil kind of makes really that, that high grade 65% FE because they're quite similar chemistries almost the uh, a product volume to, to rival the likes of the, the Pilbara mid-grade um, you know, mainstream products. So I think we can expect to see quite a bit of uh, change on the, the supply front. But what really, where things really start to get interesting is further out, which comes to, to your question, Chris, you know, the, the long term. Um, and this is about kind of this uh, shift towards cleaner steel making using um, hydrogen-based DRI production. So DRI production is an alternative route of iron making that um, currently mostly uses natural gas instead of um, met coal. Um, and DRI using hydrogen as the reducing agent instead of natural gas is a really kind of um, you know, possible route to very low carbon emission steel making. Technology already exists. The challenges are twofold. Firstly, getting the cost of um, producing what they call green hydrogen from renewable energy to make it really clean down to a, a suitable competitive level. But secondly, there's a real 
potential bottleneck in high-grade iron ore supply because the thing about the direct reduction group is it requires a um, an iron ore input of pellets of very very high purity. You're talking sixty yeah. percent Fe and upwards, yeah. which are currently very very scarce. Uh, yeah, well, very much so. I mean, we've seen one or two plants actually open up in Germany, haven't we? I think we saw Dillinger and Saastal uh, uh, open up a plant uh, last summer based on hydrogen uh, production. But as you say, getting that pellet supply is going to be very, very difficult, um, even accepting that, you know, large, you know, previously very large pellet producers like San Marco restart production from Brazil. Um, it, it just doesn't look likely we're going to have that supply enough to, uh, to, to make a global adjustment uh, anytime soon, does it? Well, Kerry, let me, let me run some of the numbers with you because it's interesting. Um, so the uh, you're right, the, the European market is where the kind of this drive is happening at the forefront. There's been a lot of um, you know, stimulus from European Central Bank trying to focus on on taking this green transition. But the numbers are quite mind-boggling. So under under the sustainable development scenario of the IEA, the International Energy Agency. They're laying out a vision where global DRI production increases from its current level of around 110 million tons per year to over 400 million tons per year um, by 2050 to meet the Paris Agreement um, stipulations. So based on the typical ratio of iron ore required per ton of DRI produced, that equates to a demand of around 600 million tons per year of DR-grade pellets, this, you know, these really <laughs> high-grade <laughs> pellets. And that's, that's more than 10 times what is currently produced today. We've got a single round of yeah. So, yeah. It's, it's, it's incredible, isn't it? So, so that really puts things in perspective. It does. And this is why I think, you know, if this is going to happen, and there does seem to be a real tailwind of intention behind it, then we need to be prepared for the iron ore production landscape to change immeasurably and unrecognizably from what it is today. And we will have new what we consider to be, you know, the main benchmark prices. If the the mills are demanding, um, you know, a much higher grade feed, then you know, that is essentially, those are going to be the tools that the market needs risk management uh, mechanisms to, to deal with. So I think we've got a nice runway ahead, um, especially for, you know, participants in the market like ourselves as a price reporting agency and yourselves as a broker for, you know, new price discovery points, uh, derivatives for things like pellet premiums um, and very, very high-grade, high-purity ores that the market and the industry of tomorrow that are going to, are going to be consuming to a greater extent. I think very we've just so, yeah. moved towards uh, wooden-built houses again. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. They've got yeah. that new... Uh, well, if they, if they did that in China, there wouldn't be a tree left in the world, though, would there? So. Very true. <laughs> very true. Uh, they've built this... Like wooden skyscrapers somewhere as well, which I read. So maybe that's a future to deal with this. But just coming towards the close of this week's podcast, I wanted to touch on something which we've we have discussed um, briefly in terms of the geopolitical problems. Um, we have, as Kerry outlined, there's that one between Australia and China ongoing, which they seem to be taking a very hard stance towards it. New Zealand, the complete opposite of someone you think would be an ally of Australia, a bit more of a you know bowing down to, to China's demands. What kind of things do you see geopolitically coming up, which could therefore have an impact on the on these iron ore markets? Yeah, great question. So um, first off, I think, you know, 
I think it's, it's quite widely known that China can't really you know, meet any of its development goals uh, without Australian iron ore for the time being. It's just too much of a too, too big a supply partner. So, um, you know, what's happened in other industries, I, I can't see happening in iron ore for the time being. But there is a concerted effort in China to look to diversify iron ore supply in the long term. Um, they're investing in their domestic supply, uh, which is limited because it's you know difficult, low in situ grades, uh, environmentally costly, and you know monetarily costly to, to upgrade. But they're also looking to invest in places like Africa. So uh, we're all aware of the the Simandu project, um, starting to break ground on that. But I. I think it's, it's worth thinking about what a reliable trading partner Australia has been um, on iron ore and the fact that that's only achievable because of you know, the actual the nature of the Pilbara industry, which lends itself to um, you know, vast quantities of iron ore coming out in a very reliable way um, across, down that logistics chain. I think if we're talking developments in places like Guinea, um, we need to be prepared for the supply picture to be a, a little bit rockier and more uncertain. Yeah. You know, like it or not, jurisdictional risks are the same kind of no matter who you are operating in places. And if you just look at recent history um, of things like Ebola, um, the risks of military coups, uh, all sorts of stuff that is is just going to make very uh, much so. Yeah, getting that sort of volume out of. West Africa a lot more difficult than, than let, let alone the railway requirements and the ability to increase the the deep water berth capacities to to take you know ever more Cape size and uh, and Valley Max vessels. So yeah, that's that's going to be well, that logistics um, investment is going to be incredibly expensive. These things usually overrun in cost. Um, yeah, but the one the one upside you would say for it is uh, I guess looking at what. The Chinese consortium have done in the Guinea bauxite industry over the last few years. You know, they really have brought a lot of volume to market in a very short space of time. So, um, you know, the flip side to everything I just said is, I guess, don't doubt the uh, don't doubt Chinese engineering prowess to to make this sort of thing happen against the odds. Yeah, they've been invested obviously lots of money in with their Belt and Road Initiative. Something we discussed several weeks ago uh, in things and. They uh, obviously need this for for their development and everything else going forward. But it would still be very interesting to see yeah. what happens with countries, especially Brazil. Exactly, with especially with Brazil aiming to increase their production. And and as Peter says, you know, it, cutting off Australia is never going to be an option, iron ore wise, for China. But uh, it simply can't find another reliable enough supplier. But not but, yet. Not, not yet. yet. But but you know, in the in the long term, if Brazil does increase that production, um, you know, it'll be interesting to see. Uh, if, uh, if the Chinese mills, you know, further that switch towards the high grade. Yeah. And uh, as we come to a close, I think this week, unless anyone has any burning future points, I'm sure that we could discuss this all morning if we really wanted to, <laughs> or all afternoon in Singapore. Um, unless anyone has any other burning points to discuss, I think it's been fantastic to have uh, Peter here talking about some of the, the big questions in the iron ore market looking forward. And obviously the implications of even bigger questions of how we move to a kind of greener economy and all the implications that has for the quantities specifically iron ore this week but it obviously has impact on on everything that we're we're looking at here at fis as well uh, and also in terms of fast markets uh, themselves battery metals well exactly we're doing too. exactly oh so um, big, big focus and, and a lot more contracts uh 
coming on that front as well. Lithium on the CME, cobalt on the CME, and yeah, probably more developments. As exactly, well. it's something we work very closely, uh, very closely on as well. So. Cool. Well, thank you very much, Peter, for joining us this week uh, and all of your knowledge on the iron ore markets. I'm sure we would definitely be having you back after that discussion, I'm sure. I can see Kerry burning with more questions already, but I've stopped him. (laughs) Thanks, guys. Cool. Thank you, Theo. Thank you, Kerry, as usual. And uh, to everyone listening, do tune in again next week.